don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 44. And after a, a brief hiatus, we're back in the saddle and uh, flying high on our Pegasus. Uh, and today we are talking about what we're calling, a group of movies we're calling late 90s reality smashers. And they include The Truman Show from 1998, Pleasantville from 1998 as well. And then uh, the, the the big big mama, The Matrix from 1999. And Will, you came up with this idea or you sort of had this grouping of films in your head. Um, and I, th- I thought it sounded like a good idea. So so what kind of made you connect these movies? Well, I love the Truman show. It's, I would, I would put it in my top 10 for sure. I think it's, it's just one of those movies where the, just like all the metaphors just kind of work out perfectly. Um, and I don't know. There's just something about that movie that I, that I've always been drawn to. And, uh, and of course I've seen the matrix, you know, several times and it just seemed I, I guess what made me think about it though was um there was a book that came out fairly recently about uh it was called best 1999 best movie year ever or something like that and i was just flipping through that book or looking at the cover really and noticing how many movies kind of uh, what movies had in common, uh, what what a lot of those movies at that time had in common. I think we've sort of alluded to this on the show before, how uh, there was a real emphasis in the late 90s or, or, or maybe an anxiety that showed up in films about sort of white-collar uh, jobs. And what what now we would we'd call good jobs um well-paying jobs we were just sort of chomping at the bit in the late 90s to tell these stories about people realizing the spiritual emptiness of these jobs and leaving them and then of course we have 9-11 and the recession and all the, you know the, the reality principle asserts itself and now we don't really see stories like that um certainly not as often so in addition to these three movies, that sort of, you know, Truman works in this, lives in this fake world, has this desk job. Obviously, Neo at the beginning of The Matrix has this desk job living in a false reality. Uh, William H. Macy's character in Pleasantville, you know, is a sort of good old boy uh, businessman, a sort of uh, death of a salesman kind of thing. Um but, but in addition to that, around the same time, you had a movie we've done on here, Fight Club, uh, American Beauty. There's a movie called Life is a House that has uh, Kevin Kline sort of leaving his, I think he's an architect or something, uh, quitting his job in, in extravagant fashion. Um, office Space, <laughs> maybe the best example of that. Uh, so you have all these movies about the like I said, the spiritual emptiness of white collar work, and um, you don't really see it 
as certainly not as often anymore. I can't think of the last movie I saw that had that theme or a th- or a character like that. But I, I do remember when Up in the Air came out, the Jason Reitman film with uh, George Clooney. It's sort of the 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 message, <laughs> the the hidden message of that movie, nauseating phrase. Um, it's sort of the opposite of the late '90s theme. It's like, look how sad it is that these people are losing their white collar jobs when ten years before that those were the jobs we were over and over and over again uh, telling through through stories and movies that, uh, that we wanted to lose these jobs we hated these jobs we felt empty at these jobs so so we could have done all those movies but there's not there's not enough time and I thought these were maybe the most extravagant examples of that where these three movies really posit a a real world and a false world to escape from so that's the the genesis of the late 90s reality smashers yeah and a lot of those a lot of those movies that you're talking about will kind of rail against that kind of white collar you know mundane show up to the office every day and do the same thing fill Mm -hmm. out your tps reports sort of existence but they never really or at least they don't seem to offer an alternative the alternative is to like get a bunch of money and and go not do anything right and um, we've talked so. about it before. the 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 genesis of the term we use on the show, the bitch ass backpedal, where a movie begins uh, uh, or, or ceases to believe in its own convictions and walk them back. Uh, that concept, um, I first encountered reading a review or a critique, really, of Office Space by Curtis White, where that's the sort of prime example where. It's this sort of very counterculture message, you know, um, Peter in, in office space gets hypnotized and, and White sort of connects that to uh, getting stoned, right, and realizing the truth. And he stops going to work or he stops working. He, I guess he still shows up. But he doesn't do anything. He gets promoted. Um, but his, his main point is that Peter's point is that this work is meaningless. This work is soul crushing this work is bad but then in the meeting with the bobs peter sort of changes his tune a little bit and he's like it's a problem of motivation if i had stock options right if he he wants profit sharing it's like wait 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 so are you saying that like the drudgery and the meaninglessness of the work goes away if you have stock options um and so thereby it kind of um walks back all of its critique and then tells us as, as Curtis White says, tells us uh, to find happiness with a shovel at the end uh, because Peter becomes a construction worker. Yeah. And, and is the, you know, is happy. (laughs) And these three films don't really, or well, as far as I kind of understood them uh, having or watching them, some of them for, a second or third time. So the matrix is one of those that I feel like everybody's seen a bunch of times. I'd seen the Truman show, but not for a long time. I'd actually never seen Pleasantville. So this is the first time I was watching it. And, um, these movies don't really seem to do that. They don't really seem to be backpedaling. They seem to be, you know, maybe not being completely transgressive. So in some cases, uh, I would say like the Truman show, the end of it is pretty, you know, transgressive, trying to get outside of literally the the, the bonds of, yeah. of what's holding him in. Uh, but in Pleasantville, 
it offers like a couple of different kind of possible outcomes mm-hmm. um, through the two characters of you know Tobey Maguire and uh, Reese Witherspoon. Mm-hmm. And funny thing, until I started watching Pleasantville, in my head it was Jake Gyllenhaal. I think they're often confused. They're always like competing for the same roles. And they finally they did that movie Brothers together. Oh, did did yeah, they? There was a movie called Brothers. I think it was kind of a dark thing. I didn't see it, but anyway. <clears throat> so yeah, but you know, Tommy McGuire, I, I, I like him. <laughs> he hasn't really done much in a, in a, quite a while. I was thinking that watching Pleasantville, I was like, when's the last time I saw Tommy McGuire? Yeah, whereas Gyllenhaal, like every couple years, it seems like he has some really good role yeah, that comes yeah. up. Um, Prince of Persia, <laughs> <laughs> the, the hits. Um, but yeah, these movies don't really seem to be uh, doing that. Um, and, and before we jump in, we we realized, or I guess you realized more so before we started recording, that this is kind of the one year anniversary of the podcast. It's also Matt's birthday. It, it's, it's also my birthday, and it's also Oscar night. It's a in it's a damn celebration. Yeah, and and Will's recording in person live from from southeast alabama mm-hmm. uh so yeah all that's going for us which is which is nice we're working our way up to the 50th episode which got, i didn't think would happen we got some fucking banging coffee going what is this <laughs> plug, uh, plug the coffee Ma, Ma, mama mocha from auburn and opelika alabama mm-hmm. fine purveyors of fine beans um so yeah with all that's going on we'll see who wins best picture tonight um i'm kind of like i don't know i kind of hope once upon a time in Hollywood wins. It, Parasite's nominated for best picture. Yeah, I, I haven't seen, seen Parasite, it. but I'm rooting for yeah. for, for Ballon. And I, I'm not, you know, I'm not proud of not having seen Parasite yet. But if that won, that would be fantastic. First time a foreign film would win, I believe. Um, but you know, seeing some of the nominees, we watched The Lighthouse, which is a nominee for cinematography last night, and that's a, a real mind mind bender. That I don't I don't know if we could we could do it for the podcast sometime in the future i would have to uh i'd have to give it another go i was uh semi-conscious uh <laughs> it was a, a late night viewing yeah so uh anyway we'll we'll jump into these three movies and i guess start with the truman show because i feel sure. like that's a, the best kind of encapsulation of <laughs> to kind of <laughs> kind of pun intended i guess uh no i like what you're saying about you know the truman show sort of being a um you know, he's literally trying to break out of this uh, this false world. He's literally trying to go beyond. Um, but it seems like a uh, not just the Truman Show, but a lot of these movies, and and really a lot of just like American literature, when you think about it, is about knowing. And unknowing, I was th- I'm thinking about a, an article I read about the Outsiders by a guy named Eric Tribunella, who writes about American young adult literature. And he uh, he talks about the Outsiders and how you know the uh, Robert Frost poem um, is used, "Stay Gold, Pony Boy," mm-hmm. and he basically argues that. What that really means is, don't know, Pony Boy. <clears throat> and you think it, you think about like the Catcher in the Rye, and how, you know, Holden call it like the Catcher in the Rye is the is is him protecting children from sort of growing up, 
which the message then is do not grow up, do not know, which all probably goes back to uh, <clears throat> the story of the Garden of Eden and, you know, do not know. Um, and I, th I think this, the Garden of Eden is, is definitely a <clears throat> precursor for all of these movies. Certainly Pleasantville, there's all kinds of like imagery of uh, Adam and Eve. But The Truman Show, for sure, um, Sylvia, there's all kinds of uh, reviews of The Truman Show pointing out the biblical allegory that it is. Yeah. And Sylvia, in that reading, is sort of a snake in the garden, which is weird because you really like Sylvia, right? She's not the bad guy by any means. In fact, Christoph... Christ of is the bad guy. Um, so anyway, I think um, what I liked what you were saying about how these movies are not backpedaling. And maybe, maybe that's why of, of all the movies we could have done, these three stood out because they do seem to be aware enough to not sort of go back on their own convictions. All of these movies are, uh, truly progressive like here's this false world you belong there is a real world outside of it in which you will you can live a more authentic life um, and Truman um, maybe it's the best example of that even though crucially that authentic life is going to be very shitty yeah yeah true like, Truman the true man exactly exactly um, yeah. like i don't know reading sylvia and, and sylvia is the uh the lady who was on the show but they kind of removed her because she was trying to tell truman the truth right, right. and so she spent seemingly her whole life being like a anti-truman show activist um yeah which is it, kind of interesting to imagine that existing in the world yeah it's i think it's a sort of uh lucifer shout out maybe where you know, the, like the biblical story of, uh, you know, Lucifer is a former angel. And mm -hmm. uh, in the interview segment of the Truman Show, Christoph, uh, Sylvia calls in in the interview and says, you know, she's like talking shit to Christoph. And Christoph says, uh, I love to reminisce with former members of the cast. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so and she's so she's sort of this fallen you know, this former member of the cast, fallen angel or something. But it's weird to think about that reading because that would mean that Truman escaping, you know, getting out of the Garden of Eden is a positive thing. And it's it sort of like messes with it because Truman is willfully trying to escape. Whereas, you know, in the biblical story, Adam is kind of, or at least initially is sort of like tricked mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, doesn't will willingly you know, cast himself out of Eden. Um, so it's, it's weird. It's almost like, according to that reading, Truman is like, I want to go into the arms of the devil, mm -hmm. which is interesting. Well, and, we and think of knowledge as like inherently evil. Well, you, um, what is it? Another thing that Christoph says to Sylvia in that interview is, I think what troubles you is that, is the idea that, Truman actually prefers the captivity. Yeah. 
um, which of course is disproved by the end. But yeah, I, I, I read a, like a, a dialogue, I guess it was. Um, I can't remember who wrote it. It was in some textbook I, I had for a class in college. And it was just sort of debating this idea uh, in the Truman Show, whether, you know, what is Truman walking into when he walks out of, what's it called? I almost said Pleasantville. Um, um, sea yeah. Haven. Sea Haven, yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted to say Sea Island for some reason. Yeah. So what is he walking into? It's It's certainly more authentic but but is that good um you know yeah. what the movie to me clearly is is pro freedom you know you have to be in control of your life he says you never had a camera in my head you know when Christoph's saying how how well he knows him he's watched him since he was born he says you never had a camera in my head um but but when you watch the movie with this sort of biblical, you know, understanding, the the final scene where he bows as if I'll be performing no longer for you is is pretty powerful. It is, yeah. Um, and I was just like, I don't know. There's a lot of you said a lot of things, and I'm th- I'm like running through my head of like <laughs> what what I want to say. Um, and something that comes up, well, when I think about the Truman Show, or I guess when anybody thinks about the Truman Show, they think of Jim Carrey, right? Because he's the he's Truman. Um, and I think in think in revisiting this movie and thinking about it, I, I think that if Jim Carrey had not been Jim Carrey, or if it had been a different actor, there was potential for this movie to be far more kind of dramatic in tone and sort of a serious examination of these concepts as mm-hmm. opposed to like. They're there, but most people don't remember them or think about them because it was Jim Carrey. Well, and if you ask people what the meaning of the Truman Show is, the most obvious one is, first of all, this came out in 1998 when reality TV was starting, you know, was was becoming yeah. a, a big thing post like real world and, and getting into like mainstream for a big brother survivor kind of bullshit. Um, and so the most immediate sort of political or social commentary is this oh invasion of privacy mining you know private life for public entertainment but the movie is so much more than that it's 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 almost using that for these big sort of philosophical um ideas to to be addressed so it's i I would say it's sort of three layers you have like the sort of conscious sort of story narrative that's enjoyable because it's well made. Peter Weir is a, you know, first rate director. Um, and it's got, uh, it's got that, uh, oh shit. What's the guy's name? Philip Glass. Yeah. It's got the same music it's, from, it's, cool uh, Niska, or, uh, it's the second one. Uh, Not yeah. Pawakatsi, uh, oh. a, shit. I, but yeah, I noticed cause when he's, uh, when Truman's trying to like fake them out and he goes into the building and yeah, is yeah. playing the, yeah. and I was like, wait a minute, I've heard this and I had to Google it. Yeah. I had the same experience except in reverse watching the Kelly on Scott's here, whichever one it is. 
I was like, what is this? And I was like, oh, it's the, the Truman Show when he's like stopping traffic, you know? Yeah. Um, I can't remember what we are saying. Uh, no, I don't remember either. Anyway, knowing and unknowing seems to be a, a, a big theme. This movie seems to be very pro knowing. Yeah. Um, and, and I think maybe the, the transgressiveness, the progressiveness of it is if, if so much of American literature and storytelling is about not knowing, remaining innocent, then all three of these movies problematize that because like i said the truman show seems very pro knowing uh yeah and then some of the like some of the funnier bits from the truman show are not even jim carrey but like i think my favorite joke from the whole film is when they're talking to christoph ed harris's character uh who had some gnarly fingernails i don't know if you saw that but his fingernails are all like long and gross but um, they're doing that interview and it's after they've brought Truman's dad back and he's sort of explaining his whole process of how to keep the show going and keep the plot fresh. And the last thing that the interviewer asks is, and how are you going to explain his father's reintroduction? And he just goes, amnesia is <laughs> brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Cause it's, it's a genius. <laughs> it's a, I forget the guy's name, but he does a lot of Simpsons voices. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. He's in those, uh, like a mighty wind. Hank is Hank Azaria. No, it's not no, Hank Azaria. Fuck, I can't remember dude's name. Um, uh, he's got a really sort of baritone voice. Yeah, I'm gonna have to because I'm I'm embarrassed. I can't remember, so I have the cast up. Hopefully, I can find it real fast. Uh, and of course, I cannot. <laughs> it's not on the cast on Wikipedia. Anyway, but, he's but, there. But casting is a like you said, the Jim Carrey thing is a real. I mean, this was his first departure, major departure that I can remember because um, this was before majestic right before the majestic i believe well, when was uh man on the moon 99 so okay. a year after yeah because yeah, that's part of that best year ever book i'm pretty sure hmm. um so yeah he he uh made a transition pretty quick because i mean like liar liar was 97 yeah and then this which is way different in tone yeah man he was he was busy for for 10 years he was like it was like he's making two two movies every year yeah and i really i don't know i appreciate his acting in in the truman show because it does kind of reflect that you know that line that you were talking about where you, you never had a camera in my head and so even though he's outwardly you know, Truman and he does the same things every day and he has his catchphrases and all that. Um, you know, he goes down in the basement and sort of looks at his like, you know, his amalgamation portrait that he's putting together of the girl and, and all these sorts of things. And he dreams about going to Fiji and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's just kind of, I don't know, you, you get this feeling or Jim Carrey manages to carry across this feeling that he has a lot of stuff going on internally Mm -hmm. um so he has this kind of split thing and it's kind of exemplified when he's in the bathroom and he does a thing where he draws the space helmet mm -hmm. on the the mirror and then when he finishes he's like that one's for free or whatever and like yeah wipes it off he has an inkling that he's you know that by that point in the movie has an inkling um that he's somehow being sur surveyed surveilled surveilled yeah 
Um, yeah, any sort of performing intentionally at that point right. where up, up until then it had been just him thinking he was living his normal <laughs> life. One of the, to me, one of the smartest aspects of the movie is when he when he escapes, when they can't find him. Or I guess he hasn't escaped. He's just he's just run away. They don't think to look at the water, you know, the lake or whatever he he's sailing on, because he's afraid of water. Because when he was a kid, that's how his dad dies. His dad, or he thinks his dad. That, that's how it was engineered right. to like do some sort of weird Freudian Freudian thing and make him afraid of water. Exactly. And so what's what I think is so brilliant is that once he's has once he has these inklings that everyone is pretending he realizes that all his fears that he feels very deeply you see he can't go near water he can't drive over the bridge you know all these things he realizes that these fears that he feels so deeply are also false um, even though he feels them very truly uh, and so that's why I think when you see him, when you finally find him, once he's had this freak out, he is sailing um, because he has come to understand that even something he can feel so intensely in a false world is is artificial, is made up. It's not truly him. Um, so I just, I, I particularly think that is... Um, an interesting thing to put in to have in this movie. And I, I, I've seen this movie probably legitimately 15 times. I used to show it in a, uh, in class just because it lends itself to so many uh, different interpretations. It's easy to talk about with students. Uh, but one, one of my favorite parts is when they're searching for him, the whole town sort of shut down and they're all the actors are just looking for him and you see, his you know in quotes father who's recently returned and the actor who plays his mom and they're screaming for him and it's even in this completely transparently false version of this false reality where they're you know the sun comes up at four o'clock in the morning and everyone is literally just looking for him they're still keeping up this lie and they're screaming like the dad's like Truman it's me dad let's talk <laughs> and and the the idea i think is that when you in the real in real life when you you know Truman's sort of the the hero with a thousand uh, you know with a thousand faces he's going on this sort of spiritual journey um and when you do this the people in this, uh, in your sort of traditional realm, the realm that you grew up in, this artificial world, as the film would pose it, do their best to sort of rein you back in. You know, there's like a, because your escape problematizes their complacency with the world. So they don't want anyone to. Um, to reach some sort of authentic place because that would mean that they themselves are accepting an inauthentic 
place. Um, I just, as you can see, there's just like a million different directions you can go with this movie. And I think that's why I like it so much. When I read, um, I've had Norman O'Brown on the brain because <laughs> I was reading Life Against Death a little bit this weekend. But Love's Body by Norman O'Brown, I think there's a lot of, I mean, it's in the Truman Show, it's very simplified. Uh, obviously, Norman O'Brown's a uh, sort of genius, but there's a lot in common with uh, what you know, that book sort of um, expounds on Plato's sort of cave theory, like the world we construct in our minds is a series of caves, uh, essentially imagine the big dome in the Truman show as just this huge cave in which, uh, you're sort of hiding from the real world. Um, and so I don't want to get off on. And well, I mean, it is strange, like the extent to which all of the, the actors quote unquote, uh, in, in the dome in sea Haven have accepted this. And, and like you're saying, as parents, it's sort of especially, strange uh, especially the mother because in that same scene you're talking about when they're all like going through the town looking for him she's like if he could just hear my voice he would come back this is like a strange i don't know strange like connection and the that his father is like angry when they write him out and mm-hmm. they, that's one that's another kind of funny scene when they, they show the scuba divers pulling him out and he's like pissed off right um yeah. but in the his wife especially um you know, who does all the product placements and that's another sort of comedic element that kind of becomes, it goes from being comedic to being like kind of deeply sad as yeah. she keeps doing it. Um, it's, it's new Moco Coco. Yeah. And then he, you know, what when the he, hell are you talking about? When, yeah. And then in that same scene, he like, you know, is, is confronting her and he like grabs her or has a, he does something that, and she starts screaming. She's like, get me out of here. And then she's like freaking out and crying. Like it's not professional. Yeah. And it's so weird to like imagine that anyone could create that sort of divide inside their head. And she's like trying to get him or they're trying to convince him to like have kids. And so she's trying to sort of become impregnated by her fake real husband Mm -hmm. in order to prolong her career, but not because she will. It's just, I don't know. It's well to imagine it at that level is kind of crazy. And it's, it's interesting that this movie predates social media too because if it didn't it would still make perfect sense like if this movie came out today the the idea of the sort of false world of social performance like everyone in the in the dome is performing for an audience yeah and Um, like people trying to like break in to be on the show like the guy jumping out of the christmas present the, the skydiver guy yeah um that that all makes perfect sense whereas you know in 98 it might have appeared a little bit weirder but now with this whole influencer culture and all that sort of stuff it it makes it it doesn't seem as foreign to us now as it you know i mean it still seems strange um this idea that just the sheer sort of investment in this show to create this giant dome in hollywood and and uh, all that sort of stuff is just sort of, it's, it's fascinating. Um, and Christoph, who we've already talked about a little bit, is just sort of a fascinating character in a lot of different ways. Um, and there was something I was going to say earlier, and I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, because there's this idea of he's, 
Oh, I was thinking of the the you know climax when Truman's sailing toward it uh, toward the edge of the the dome, and Kristoff keeps hitting him with like more and more weather storms mm-hmm. and waves, and Truman at one point is like, "You're going to have to kill me," and for a brief moment, Kristoff is like, "Okay." Because I need to conserve the show. But if he kills Truman, what's the show? And that's sort of like what pulls him back. And so there's a lot of... It's a similar thing to his wife and his parents and stuff, but to a greater extent because Kristoff presents as if he's like Truman's father, Mm -hmm. you know, of basically your creator. His caretaker. Um, Yeah, but at the same time, he has to keep the show going. Like he is a showrunner and that's Mm -hmm. kind of his... His, uh, his existence is predicated on this show continuing. Well, and you see the producers are the ones concerned, mostly concerned with whether or not Truman survives. And Kristoff, you know, is the artist, right? He's got the obligatory yeah. beret. That, and that's what I was going to say is, uh, I'm glad you said that because it reminded me, but I think it's during the phone conversation with Sylvia when he says, well, the world out there is... The sick place. It's the sick place, and it's horrible, and I he's protected in here, mm-hmm. right? Which kind of makes you think, to Kristoff, like, it's also Kristoff running away from the real world, right? Because he's the one that's created Sea Haven, which is this, like, leave-it-to-beaver-ass little town. Right. Um, well, and another another example of Kristoff's hypocrisy is a, a subtle little line that uh, Harry Shears... Yeah, yeah. ...just came to me fully formed... Uh, that uh, Harry Shears's character says uh, he thanks at the beginning, he thanks Kristoff for granting him this interview. And he says, because we all know how jealously you guard your privacy. (laughs) Yeah. Which is exploiting this, you know, this uh, exploiting Truman in unprecedented ways. And he's such like a stereotype, stereotypical, like artistic guy with his black berets, all black and and his, he looks like Steve jobs kind of. Yeah. yeah. Um, So yeah, it's, I I like that character. He's Um, sort of, it's sort of uh, similar to Javier Bardem as the artist God in mother. Right. Yeah, a similar kind of affect and like yeah. the way that he carries himself and speaks to people. Pretentiousness. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And like Paul Giamatti as one of the like sub directors or, you know, Yeah, assistants. he's sort of like a, like an, uh, the angel or something. He's like the person <laughs> yeah. doing God's work. And I just love how when something goes wrong, they're like, oh, oh shit, what do we do? <laughs> we have to tell Christoph. And then when they shut it down and everyone around the world. And that that's one of my, you know, I've talked a lot about how I like world building. And that's one of my favorite parts of the film is when you see those shots of the outside and like the guy in the bathtub. Yeah. And the bar that's just like a Truman bar, I guess. Right. Uh, and the the sort of famously the two uh, parking garage attendant guys mm-hmm. were at the end of the, the movie. They're like, oh, let's see what else is on. What else is on. Which is a great kind of indictment of the kind of audience that would be, you know taken in by the Truman show. Right. And, and I think, I think what's going on there is you see that outside of this, outside of the dome in the so-called real world is this other kind of dome that all these people are prisoners in. They are a captive audience, you know, and, and what they do. And I think the commentary is about how we or, or, you know, we're, we're within the Christian realm here because of all the biblical um, allegory 
or symbolism in this movie. It seems to me like the movie is saying we're so focused on a sort of historical hero worship um, as seen through, you know, like you said, the Truman Bar and everyone's just watching this show. Um, and maybe what's being said is that maybe like the hero story is for everyone. It is not supposed to be uh, concentrated on you know one or two special figures throughout history it is it it should be and can be indicative of like everyone's life everyone's journey from like unknowing to knowing from inauthentic to authentic but we have this sort of celebrity idea even in even in religion it's it's like jesus is sort of the celebrity of christianity and so and so the 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 lessons of the story of Jesus get concentrated and fixated on this sort of celebrity of the historical Jesus, as opposed to how does the story of Jesus, the narrative of his life, how should that inform my life? You know? Um, And that's, uh, I think that's why you see all these people just watching because they're just sort of fans of of the show, the way sort of Christians are just kind of fans of Jesus or, 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 you know, a certain worldview instead of letting it actually impact how they live and change, you know, in radical ways, change how they live. It's just another part of the culture and you might as well just change the channel because something similar will be on. Yeah, and that also kind of works in a kind of inverse where you'll have the the hero worship um, sort of blinds people from a, a kind of any sort of negative things that a person would do. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking specifically, and this might cause an uproar, but I'm thinking of uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce where they, they've been so elevated in our culture and Beyonce is this sort of new feminist icon and Jay-Z is just this like really cool guy that... Uh, you know, made himself and built himself up and stayed authentic and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I, I feel lame describing Jay-Z as a really cool guy. I was trying to think of a better way to elaborate on that. He's, uh, a, he's a righteous dude. He's a righteous dude. Um, they think he's a righteous dude. So you have that sort of image. Um, and so they can kind of do no wrong, right? Mm-hmm. This whole beehive, you know, yes, Queen Beyonce culture um, to the point where they like, We'll just have T-shirts that that have like uh, anyway, um, and she. I'm not going to say that she hasn't done um, feminist things, but then also these people are like billionaires and they're you know using their money for not always for the best causes and they're living very extravagant lifestyles and all that kind of stuff. But people put that to the side and they don't focus on the actual sort of ways in which they're living. They focus on the outward image, mm-hmm. right? So it's sort of like similar thing that would happen in the case of like Jesus of focusing on sort of the figurehead of Jesus and not on the actual message and the sort of lived experience. Right. But in that case, it sort of works in favor of the person as opposed to working against their message. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the message is sort of, in this case, the message is part of that sort of central figurehead and it's not anything that's being carried through. And in a lot of ways, in some ways it's laziness. It's an, you know, it's easier to 
idealize and worship something or someone than it is to uh, live out your own life informed in some way by an ideal. Um, in some ways, it's it's this weird lack of self-esteem where in a, if you grow up, if you're born into a celebrity culture, you just kind of buy into the idea that there are special people and it's everyone else's job to sort of bolster those special people uh, and that those stories uh, and journeys and, and, you know, the hero story is for specific special people, not for you. Uh, there's there's a line about that in, in Paul Goodman's book, Growing Up Absurd, where he, he's talking about the idea that like life is for others, that so many people just believe that life, a good, interesting, meaningful life is, in so many people's minds, is just for these particular people who, who happen to have a talent, you know, that makes them marketable. And that's just crazy, you know, um, but it's understandable in in a celebrity culture because you're just fed this lie from the day you're born. Um, like, and this is something that will probably come up next week, given what we're going to talk about, but the idea of living a simple life. Mm -hmm. And for most people, when they say that, they don't mean like going and living on a farm, living off the land. They mean like downsizing what they already have right mm -hmm. which which is sort of far from simple and and also if they were to to go to a quote a perfectly you know quote unquote simple existence of like living and farming their own food and raising animals and stuff that is far from simple right that's far more complicated than what they're already doing uh which is you know living the sort of mainstream existence you know you go to kroger and buy your food you have your internet and your your phone and all this sort of stuff right. that that's even though that that too is very complicated and you're intertwined kind of you know either uh against your will or willingly into all these other kinds of systems that have control of you and everybody has your social security number and, and that kind of thing um it's it's far easier to go along with that than it would be to sort of try to get outside of it and live a you know quote-unquote simple existence um yeah, it's like so. everyone's trying to free themselves from from work because there's the there, there's this idea that there's something else to do. There's just you know, different like, kinds of work <laughs> that you would have to do. Well, it's like it's really just to you're trying to free yourself to have more time to consume. And 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 when you actually get there you realize, you know, not that this is an original thought, but there's just an emptiness to consuming and that the pleasures of consuming are predicated on the work you do to afford that. It's, consumption. That's what yeah. re retirement is, right? It's <laughs> right. sort of the, the, the consumption extravaganza after you've put in your time. Mm -hmm. Right. And then now even that's kind of going extinct. And, and you're too, uh, the terrible tragic irony is that in a lot of cases, you're too old to enjoy the fruits of your, of your labor yeah and in, in the way that you would like to right you buy your rv or uh, what it, your beach house shit out of me. yeah <laughs> um but it's a, a big part of it is that people think that there are certain ways in which they have to be happy or that they have to enjoy themselves yeah. and then it, when they can't do those things they're disappointed it's it, to me it's more about finding 
other ways in which to enjoy yourself. Uh, but anyway, um, getting outside of the Truman Show, getting out of the the dome a little bit. I guess we could talk about Pleasantville. Uh, they're, they're, these movies are so connected; it doesn't really matter. But Pleasantville is also '98, so why not? Um, but it too has a lot of biblical allegories going. Like a, maybe more. Well, I don't know. They're they're both pretty visible. They're both films make them pretty visible. Yeah. But we were uh, looking yesterday at. Um, I can't remember what it was called. Uh, Hollywood's War on God. Yeah, which ironically mentions all three of these films. Yes. Um, or fortuitously actually mentions all three of these films. But we watched a little bit of the Pleasantville section. Mm-hmm. And this this guy, uh, the voiceover is terrible in this. Uh, it's some sort of documentary, but it was like clearly like not super well produced. Like it was just clips with someone talking over them. Yeah, and, the, it, was, and it was not like a... Uh, it, like it sounded like it was done maybe on a Mac, not like a. Yeah, uh, the voiceover is like studio. really like not very good, and yeah. and what he's reading is very repetitive. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was kind of interesting because he's pointing out things that are definitely in the film, but then misreading them horribly. Well, he to to his worldview, he's not misreading them at all. <laughs> he all he's doing is fitting fitting the uh, religious imagery into religious ideology so like he's nailing it from a sort of fundamentalist christian perspective um and so he's only incorrect insofar as fundamentalist christianity is incorrect which is completely (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah he does i mean it you can sort of see where he might get this idea especially if you think about like jennifer reese witherspoon's character who is legitimately like her role um, through the first half of the film or more is to be like a harlot mm-hmm. and sort of be tempting, uh, you know, tempt the, the children of Pleasantville sort of Pied Piper them out to lover's lane so they can, they can hump each other and, and turn, change colors. Um, and also uh, with Joan Allen as, as Betty, um, they, I remember the guy talking about her as sort of being an evil influence because mm-hmm. she decides that she wants more, out of life than to cook meatloaf and overfeed her family. Probably the best detail of the, that documentary, if you can call it that, um, Hollywood's War on God, is when the narrator is talking about Betty being painted in the nude. Uh, it shows the clip of the nude painting, but it blurs out <laughs> yeah. the uh, the nudity, which is you know it's a painting on a window there's no like realism to it yeah it's like a semi cubist kind of (laughs) abstract sort of painting um but yeah this this film i think has uh a lot of the same themes as the truman show kind of but i don't know they're 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 inverted a little bit or they're they're sort of uh, complicated by the fact that there's this kind of magical element where they get sucked into the toby Maguire and reese witherspoon get sucked into the the television show through uh the the intervention of barney fife yeah yeah um i think the real credit uh, a real credit to this movie is and in in some ways it's kind of updates or complicates the truman show is that the arc of jennifer reese witherspoon's character and like you said she has this role of sort of seducing and and luring these uh, kids into 
She's a kid herself in the film. Right, 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 right. yeah. She's <laughs> sounds a little bit more nefarious when you say it like that. But but you see at the beginning of the movie that, you know, in, in the so-called real world, um, in the 90s, it's this kind of like crowded, uh, you know, everyone's wearing like Nikes and blue jeans. It's just like the world you Gap recognize. Yeah, yeah. Whatnot. And so you think for the first half of the movie, you think that the movie's saying this old fogey world of Pleasantville has some things to learn from the nineties. This, uh, but, but by the end, Jennifer, you know, chooses to stay in Pleasantville and she started reading DH Lawrence, uh, you know, and she's never read a book before. And to the film's credit, you see, that it does not completely reject the, you know, the the Pleasantville paradigm. It's sort of saying, no, the sort of cynicism of the nine, you know, nineties reality has some things to learn from this traditional culture. Mostly, it's saying this traditional culture has some things to learn from, not not really the nineties, but from youth, from young people, hmm. um, and. And in a lot of ways, it's it made me think of Marcuse and like Eros, the the loss of Eros in in civilization. Which, yeah, Pleasantville is completely devoid of of Eros exactly. before they show up, right? And the and the coming into color is sort of a metaphor for yeah. coming into a more erotic, not not and, necessarily sexual, but yeah, they sort of use sex to mean sort of. Eros, um, yeah, which is seems like that's a theme that comes up a lot. Um, but I, I do think that the way the film, because the the whole color thing is is a good, it's a good trick, you know, and and I think the film uses it in a way where it's not like tacky or it, it mm-hmm. doesn't become like some kind of weird running joke that doesn't have any kind of meaning. You think of yeah. things like Betty, you know, covering her face with makeup so people don't don't know. But I do think that the way the film uh sort of i'm thinking specifically like the no coloreds signs and stuff like that's pretty clumsy if there's one thing in the film that i thought was like maybe not thought through very well is the mm-hmm. fact that they they try to make it sort of reminiscent of the civil rights era but mm-hmm. it's in a film where there are no black people well I, you know i thought about that and i thought well there can't be black people in pleasantville for the like like um in its traditional terrible state because that would undercut the the you know kind of the message of the film if, if you see um a, an integrated like a racially integrated community the backwoodsness of it is not is not you know fully there mm. it has to seem racist it has to seem um you know, misogynist it mis- has yeah, to yeah, have yeah. all those right markers but, you know maybe if if you wanted to make it a race commentary maybe like the character like the the, the main characters are black <laughs> you know <or> like Tobey <laughs> Maguire. like that would be so because then but, but then it's then the, you're the like the whole movie is about race y- yeah point. and then you're associating like lasciviousness with with being a racial other which is right. a, a big problem right um 
but yeah, it's just I, that part. I, I like the movie, but that part I was like, eh, maybe don't do that. <laughs> maybe maybe leave that on the cutting room floor a little bit. And and that is implicit in a way. You know the the idea of um, progressiveness, um, trying to trying to teach this sort of traditional culture to be more open minded. It's like we know Pleasantville's racist. Just yeah. just just by be, looking around. There's no black people. It's a you know it just looks like a a town where there would be a you know. Uh, picture in a textbook from a sit-in or something um so yeah I, I, i'm with you like they didn't they didn't have to do that for that implicit connection to be made yeah and but, it, in, in a way it's kind of used as a joke yeah which like, is oh a, they're even, turning color you know they are being colored no colors like uh there's, there's yeah better and i had that moment where i like i saw it and i kind of chuckled and then i had to think like why why did i laugh at that right Right. And then it turned into like, well, it's it's funny because it's so tone deaf, but I don't know if that's why I laughed initially. And that's yeah. kind of worrying that, that it was used like that. Um, but, you know, like like I said, it's one of like the rare things in the film that, that doesn't land or like doesn't doesn't mm-hmm. work that they don't pull off because everything else I think is is, you know, for a big Hollywood movie with like hot young actors of the time. I mean, hot is in like people wanted to see them. <laughs> and, alluring. Yeah, yeah yeah like you want to you want to have sex with toby mcguire <laughs> um so as far as all that goes it has it's sort of like the truman show in that it's a big hollywood production but it has a lot of messages that you don't really that we certainly don't seem to get anymore from like big hollywood releases mm-hmm. right um or at least you know not as as directly but i, I like your point and and this is kind of what i was thinking too that in a movie like this, it would be really easy to sort of pick one era over the other and be like, Pleasantville needs to be more like the world was at the end of the 90s or the people in the 90s need to be more like the people in Pleasantville. But instead, it sort of is, is picking and choosing things that, that work from those eras. Um, so in uh, Jennifer, in Reese Witherspoon's character, it's kind of best encapsulated because she doesn't, she doesn't decide to stop being a, a slut, which she like identifies herself as, you know, I've tried being a slut that um, she doesn't stop being that because she feels guilty or she thinks it's wrong necessarily, but it wasn't fulfilling to her. She wasn't like getting, at, she wasn't getting out of it what she wanted. And then she starts reading DH Lawrence and sort of expanding her mind a little bit. Well, she, what she does is she moves from a sort of crass sexuality to what we were talking about earlier, this sort of, erotic because when she reads it she's like oh this is pretty hot right right but but you know it's important that she's reading dh lawrence because dh lawrence is is critiquing uh industrial society you know and and all the sex in his novels is like an affront to this sort of industrial quantitative oppressive um society and so she's sort of realizing the place of sexuality um, as uh, as more than this some sort of he- hedonism, it's actually a uh, an intellectual kind of um, it has an intellectual side to it. Sapiosexual <laughs> sort of existence. Um, 
but yeah, and so she she stays behind, and that's what, like if you want to get into the reality of the movie, which would be dumb. You like, yeah. how does she stay in the show? Well, uh, how do they get to the show? Like, there's, there's <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Um, no, it's a it's a fairy tale, you know. Yeah, and and so you know she stays behind in Pleasantville, and, like goes to college and like has a family and seems to enjoy sort of her existence. Um, and it, you know it's a big turn, and it's meant to sort of be that big change from at the beginning. We see her like. Her number one goal in life is to get the the hunk. I forget his name. Um, she says it like a million times, but to get him to come over to the house while her mom's gone, so they can bang it out. Yeah. Um, and then she sort of realizes maybe there should be more to my life than trying to, you know, to bang one out to to bang one to make the beast with two backs with <laughs> the guy with the nice hair. Yeah. And the obligatory leather jacket. Yeah. Who looks like he's. 35 like him and all of his friends dress like teenagers but they they look way older um so yeah her character was and i mean really it was just that i found her character more interesting and compelling than toby Maguire's because he doesn't i'm not really sure what he gets out of his experience well, well his you know they're twins uh yeah and and he they're sort of mirror opposites in a way like so he's all head you know, and she's all, and she's all head, but in a, in a <laughs> <Yeah>. different. <laughs> well, uh, she's different all, way. she's all body, and he's all mind, right? And yeah. so then, and he his... like idolizes, or, or you know, he um, idealizes um, Pleasantville because, and it's it's that nineties thing of like his family has fallen apart and is kind of fractured, so he he wishes he had the There's mother a, that was always there with dinner, artificial wholeness or wholesomeness to Pleasantville that yeah. is attractive. But you see, his real journey is the opposite of, of Jennifer's, and he has to be more sort of carnal. Like, he turns color when he is about to fight, you know, uh, to defend his mom. Um, so, yeah, he has to be more of the body to become authentic, and she has to become more of the mind to be more authentic. So, um, yeah, they're similar similar stories but in reverse yeah and then and then the other the other characters so like uh uh jeff daniels this mm-hmm. care I, I always almost say jeff bridges jeff bridges <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so i had to like slow down and really think about it but jeff daniels character um who has that sort of like connection with the mom and there's that sort of I just love his aimlessness where he's like, you didn't, you weren't here. So I didn't know what to do. Uh, and Toby Maguire has to be like, if I'm not here, you can still make the burgers and, right. and all that. Close up the shop. Yeah. And, and so his sort of aimlessness is, is really interesting. And it's sort of like Truman show esque of him slowly kind of breaking out of it. Mm-hmm. And there's that moment. I don't know why this like was so, I don't know. I don't know why I remember this so much, but when he sees Betty after he's sort of started to be sh- shaken out of his little existence and he's like oh hey betty and they have this sort of moment of like oh hey i know you i remember you mm-hmm. like what 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 is what do i remember about you what is our relationship like right and then it sort of starts growing after that and he sort of gets really into color and looking at the paintings and all right. that sort of stuff um and it's all that really was really powerful when he's when toby Maguire brings him the art book and he's flipping yeah. through it and you see him seeing these sort of famous paintings for the first time i I got sort of a 
a heart swell for some reason. Yeah, and he's really... like, well, how do you, he was like, how do you get that color? Like, how do we, how do we do that? And then that's the, the thing later on when the, the mayor and all the douchebag guys make the rules. It's like, you can't use colors other than black and gray and white, mm-hmm. um, which is a good sort of, it, it kind of reminded me of, of Animal Farm, but it's a good sort of um, encapsulation of, of the problem. Your color is a good sort of symbol for what's, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, just not when they start talking about colored people. Um, I really like in Pleasantville how art is kind of posited as the antidote to this oppressive tradition, uh, yeah. traditional society. And I, I, I had seen the movie before and I'd forgotten how big a role art plays. And, and Jeff Daniels' character is kind of the spirit of the of the changing town. The The artist is the the person who expresses you know what's happening culturally and there's the great moment at the end which is the big fuck you is they just you know use all these colors that they've been uh specifically told not to in like the the ten commandments or whatever Mm -hmm. and you know they they paint it on the side of a public building and it and it tells the story of what's been happening in pleasantville um you know people changing colors and and uh this fight that's happened you know uh the way the way an artist depicts you know cultural anxieties um and then they they don't try to deny it they like sleep next to the yeah. the wall as if to say fuck you um yeah, yeah. and the, i mean there's the the visual art for sure but then there's D.H. Lawrence and other kinds of books that that finally have words in them so people can read them. Right. What are they, they're reading Huck Finn. Yeah. D.H. Lawrence, Catcher in the Rye, I think is mentioned. And then uh, there's also the music when, and, and it's kind of mostly after all the kids start banging each other and they're in the diner and they they're playing like rock and roll. Yeah. And then that's one of the things that that they ban that the city fathers ban, which is uh, they say only certain kinds of music and it's like. You know, yeah. the kind of music. Yeah, I can't remember the names of any specific artists, but yeah. Glenn Miller, I think, was one of them. Like, you can only listen to him. Um, what was I going to say? There was something. I think I think Fiona Apple. Across did, the Universe. Did saying Across the Universe. Yeah. And that video was directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Oh, okay. uh, and it's like people just smashing up the diner. And I think... Uh, What's his name? He's in all the PTA movies. It's Dr. Steve Brule. Oh, John C. Riley. John C. Riley's in that in that video, but it's like made to it's in black and white. It, it looks like the diner in, in Pleasantville. Maybe it is the diner in Pleasantville. Uh, that's it's a, a cool music video. And that's a is an interesting choice. Cause Fiona Fiona <laughs> Fiona Apple um, definitely like still around but big in the 90s had her you know this world is bullshit moment at the grammys um and then is covering a beatles song which is everybody knows the beatles yeah Uh, the refrain is if i'm not mistaken is nothing's going to change my world Mm -hmm. but it's like you know this lament yeah uh especially when you see this sort of traditional diner indicative of a whole sort of lost way of life being smashed to pieces by these uh rioters in the video uh 
with her sort of sad voice saying nothing's going to change my world and you and you see uh it's like the the times they are changing sort of uh the futility of resisting positive change more you know becoming more open-minded um but like like i said initially the crucial uh part of this movie that that i think makes it uh more credible is the arc of jennifer that this is not a complete rejection of of tradition it is like you said about picking what is good about tradition and and keeping that and building on that um you don't see any books in the real world at the beginning and toby Maguire is just like very confused when he sees his sister reading <laughs> yeah um and so it's not a complete rejection it is a um a fair-minded you know there are there are good things about this there are good things about this we can pick and choose what is most conducive to human health and happiness yeah and uh I, I, another thing this is kind of my last thought on the film i think but the <clears throat> thing that stuck out to me is how <clears throat> how i can't talk was um how when and it's set off by the whole sort of i guess now well-known scene if you've seen the movie of william h macy wandering around the house going where's my dinner which is like really funny but then it leads to this sort of backlash from the the men of pleasantville who are all like in the bowling alley all converting seven ten splits easily Mm -hmm. and how much that sort of reflects this kind of um sort of what has become now the stereotypical like trumpian attitude of like we're, we're, we're being oppressed because yeah. our women aren't, you know, at home cooking meatloaf or, you know, our dinner's not ready or, you know, he had to like put his own dinner in the oven and that's like, but, but that's what you do. That sort of thing. That, that scene where she's explaining to him how to like turn on the oven and stuff is like very sad. <clears throat> yeah. It's sort of like, it's sort of like her way of saying I'm leaving you. Right. So now you need to you know, provide for yourself right. in that you need to know how to, how to heat up a pie or whatever. But, but then even by the end, after Tobey Maguire's given the big speech in the courthouse, marriage itself is not uh, argued against. It is oppressive, you know, rule of thumb, you know, uh, the oppressive aspect of traditional marriage, sub- the, the wife submitting to the husband is what's problematized. And you see that they, you know, William H. Macy finally turns uh, into color when he is made to think about sort of reasons why he first got together with with his wife. Uh, And so there is some sort of seed of passion there. And but then she's had this affair and then the movie ends with all three of them with with um the the wife William H Macy and Jeff Daniels mm-hmm. embracing the complicated messy situation yeah. therein and and not being uh morally indignant about it but just like what do we do now um 
the the same way at the end of the Truman Show, like I said, he's he's coming, he's found this escape from this artificial world, but it's no guarantee of some sort of perfect life. In fact, much much the opposite. Um, so the maybe what's interesting about these movies is that they're not completely naive. They don't yeah. they don't just reductively uh you know shit on some tradition and then move on it's this is a complicated sort of journey yeah and something else that that links all the movies but specifically i'm thinking of the truman show in pleasantville is just consumption and i'm thinking specifically about like uh, we already mentioned a little bit but in the truman show all the product placement Mm -hmm. of the wife and then uh Noah Emmerich's character who always shows up with the six pack and he's like holding yeah. it toward the yeah, camera. Yeah. Uh, but then in Pleasantville, it's, it's not that sort of commercialized consumption, but like literal consumption of when they're having breakfast mm-hmm. and they have like, you know, huge this spread. huge yeah. thing. Um, and you know, the, the mother's always cooking like every kind of food at once. Right. right. Um, so that sort of idealized, um, it's sort of like, Cracker Barrel, right? Yeah. All the breakfasts at Cracker Barrel have like 15 different items with them, which is fantastic. Right. But it's it's meant to be sort of indicative of what like a baby boomer thinks a breakfast should be, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. As he reads his paper and it's brought to him. Yeah. yeah. You have your coffee with your eggs and your bacon and your sausage and your ham and, and all that. There's sausage in the gravy that's on everything. Uh, one other little thing I noticed um, when... Toby Maguire's character is trying to get the um, other young people to come out in the rain mm-hmm. from under the awning because they don't know what rain is. This is a, a very strange thing. There's an overhead shot of Toby Maguire with the rain falling down on him and his arms up like this. And it is almost exactly the same shot from the Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> That's what I was thinking that. Well, I didn't think it when I saw it, but when you started talking about it, but it's, but it's, uh, if it's intentional, which it seemed, I I looked up the scene from Shawshank Redemption and watched them back to back. And it's like the same angle, everything. Hmm. I mean, it looks like cut straight from Shawshank. And I think thematically it works if it is intentional to say uh, in Shawshank that happens as he's just escaped. Yeah, prison. crawled through the shit pipe to, right. to get out. And so here is freedom. And he's, you know, obviously trying to free these people. Um, anyway, that's a small little connection to make. No, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. It's kind of, I wonder if that's like a con, because Shawshank would have been a few years before that. Yeah, so maybe, 94, I think. Maybe it's like a conscious sort of, uh, I just remember that's like, you know, that's such a famous scene. And that was like when Shawshank would play on like TNT in the little commercial telling you when it was coming on. That's, that's like the, yeah, the yeah, yeah. snippet they would show. Also, kind of, it, no one ever talks about this connection, but in um, Raising Arizona, when they escape the prison and they're coming up out of the mud mm-hmm. and they're just like screaming at the sky. <laughs> that I'm not, I've seen that, but I don't remember that. It's, it's John part. Goodman and I forget the other actor, but John Goodman like crawls up out of the mud and then he reaches down in the mud and like pulls the other guy out and they're just like, ah, <laughs> um, you should go back and watch that scene. It's pretty, it, I think it's got a, a interesting kind of connection yeah. to Shawshank. Um, so the matrix, I guess we can, we can hit. Um, and 
Matrix is a movie that I think everybody has seen and has had a sort of obsession with to different levels. Um, it was hard to avoid when it came out. Yeah, but I remember loving it when I was younger, and then I rewatched it a few years ago, and I thought, man, man, this doesn't really hold up quite as well as I thought it did. Well, as ju- I thought just it did. for just for like superficial reasons, you know, um, uh, payphones for one. Um, yeah, that's... the green sort of computer um, font or whatever you call that. Yeah, that's like. And the, the bullet like time stuff is very like, just because CG and stuff has made such great advancements since then, yeah. it's it looks a little corny now. Yeah. It, I mean, you can't make a movie that, that's dependent on technology or a, a new technology and expect it to age well. Yeah. Uh, thematically, though. Yeah. It, it's, you know. And sort of like Fight Club, and a lot of people have said this, but like like Fight Club, it's sort of been co-opted by, you know, alt-right douchebags of like... Red pill, blue pill. Yeah, Yeah. um, which is unfortunate that, you know, as a culture, we would let them sort of wrestle that away from us into their corner because... Because what they're trying to get a handle on is authenticity. Yeah, yeah. We are the authentic uh, worldview. It's sort of like you're saying with the the fundamentalist guy in the, the uh, Hollywood's war on God documentary, like according to him, this is spot on criticism that he's like nailing every point. Right. Um, but to anyone who's not an idiot, they're like, what, what the fuck are you talking about? Right. Um, but yeah, with the matrix, the whole thing is in the, the matrix is even more kind of closely tied to this idea of, of kind of work in that kind of, uh, you know, existence because Neo at the beginning, that's sort of his jam. Like he's a hacker, I guess. Um, but at night, at night, but he, he, it's like he works in this like giant corporation, maybe to have access. Yeah. Um, uh, and but he keeps his, I remember him keeping his discs or whatever in a simulation and simulacra by Jean Baudrillard, uh, which is a lot of Baudrillardian concepts go into the movie so that's probably the wachowski's given like a direct shout out yeah yeah but i mean the basics of it you know he something something i like is he's heard neo or mr anderson i guess his name is john is that right john anderson yeah maybe or maybe that's the guy from hans christian Anderson, <laughs> Paul Thomas, I think uh, Pamela, Louis. We're just gonna keep going. <laughs> uh, he's heard of the Matrix, which I thought was interesting. So, like, there's like a rumor in the hacker world of the that, of, that you're not living in reality, right? Which is kind of creepy to think about. Yeah. Like, he's. I mean, in our own world, we have people saying that there's a non-zero probability that it's a simulation, which is something. Yeah. I mean, it's not disprovable, I guess, yeah. uh, from our perspective. But I guess I've heard crazier theories than that. Scientology. But, um, I mean, essentially, it, like, like we said, it's the hero story. The same as in the Truman Show neo's living this artificial existence he doesn't know it and the drama is him coming to know it and then to fight to defend 
the authentic world. Um, and, and in the matrix, there's this, you know, not so subtle use of the term, the machines, which is a, you know, recalls the, the rhetoric of the 1960s of, you know, fight the machine, um, which in the matrix is literally machines, <laughs> yes. you know, in um, the kind of Terminator esque, you know, we made them and then they took over sort of scenario. And, and if I got it correctly, the, so human beings are essentially harvested. They're for batteries it, basically. For, yeah. For energy yeah. Uh, to run the machine world. Um, but their minds have been defaulted or programmed, I guess, into essentially a dream. And then yeah. the dream that they're having is, is the world. Or, as we or know. think about it as like basically a video game, pretty much like yeah. a video game kind of existence mm-hmm. while they're really, you know, in, in the goop <laughs> being, being harvested. And so it's no coincidence that when Morpheus finally gets through to Neo and he chooses to whatever, whichever pill it is that he takes to, to go to the real world, it's a birth scene. Yeah. He is, he is being born. Um, so he sort of unplugs from the, you know, from the back of his head, there's this, this plug and it's, it's almost like this umbilical severing. Yeah. And people um, that are born in the real world don't have it. Right. Cause like the brothers Dozer and I can't remember his brother's name. But yeah. They don't have it because they were born outside of the matrix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The old fashioned way. I didn't think about that. Um, yeah. But then there's this sort of gross birth scene where he's like sliding through this canal and then in this goo and, uh, he's bald. And, um, yeah. Very, very kind of like a infantile. Yeah. And then he comes to start to understand the real world. And maybe this is so kind of, you know, broy or whatever. Like my favorite scene is probably the fight scene. I know Kung Fu. In the dojo with uh, with Morpheus. It's just not for any intellectual reason. It's just like a well choreographed fight scene. Um, and it goes on for like five or six minutes. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the um, the ending when Agent Smith shoots at him and he just goes, no. <laughs> like stops all the bullets. <laughs> Um, and there's been a lot made of, or some people have, have made this point, and this is sort of looking at the whole trilogy that agent Smith is sort of the actual protagonist or should be the actual considered the actual protagonist because he's the one that's sort of having a greater struggle than Neo because Neo the whole time has sort of had this idea of I'm the savior. I'm the one that's going to that has the ability to maybe overthrow the machines and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Agent Smith is of the machines and, you know, in later in the series goes rogue and kind of starts infecting everybody within the matrix to become an agent Smith. Um, mm-hmm. So his is more of like a, of a kind of becoming and sort of struggling to figure out what his existence his is for. Is the more tragic existence. Yeah. You know, because yeah, that's a good point. I've never thought of that. Or he's just the more interesting character in a lot of ways than than Neo is. Because with Neo, it's like you always know he's sort of the Christ figure, which if you want to talk about biblical imagery, that's also definitely in the Matrix. Yeah. In the, the third one, when he's kind of, he's literally killed and then resurrected, and they do like a crucifixion thing where he's like hooked up to all the just machines. Just in case you missed it. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, but in remember. Trinity is like, I mean, just the names. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, uh, I've seen this, the second and the third one, but I don't remember them at all. They're, they're not very memorable. Yeah. I just remember there's, like there's the architect. Movie? Right. They're making a fourth one. Is that right? They shouldn't, but uh, <laughs> that's... I've, I've heard that's a thing that's like in production or maybe even already made. I can't imagine that being, I don't know. Well, I'll watch it have if it seen, happens. Have you seen John Wick 3? No, I still need to, It's on HBO. I need to watch it. There's a shout out to The Matrix that's pretty pretty funny where, uh, you know, whatever happens in John Wick 3, he's he's preparing for the showdown against mm-hmm. the, the bad guys. And his friend asks him, you know, what do you need? What can I get for you? And he says, guns. Lots of guns. Which is you know, the exact line from the matrix i was like i get that therefore this is cool yeah yeah i need to i've seen the other two but i haven't seen the third one yet um yeah keanu being sort of the action star of the the young millennium yeah it's kind of interesting yeah turn of events i've heard that will smith turned down the role in the matrix it's probably for the best yeah he's a little too it it would be like a jim carrey sort of thing where We don't have the same associations. Yeah, and and I can't really think of Keanu Reeves delivering like funny lines. Yeah, and and there's no way I can think of Will Smith as going, you know, doing a completely sober. Yeah, although he has like he's really good in Ali, and he's he's been in some good dramas. But yeah, that's a good point. But 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 Muhammad Ali is such a dynamic. Who, who had was really funny on right, top of right, being right, right. A, a serious person yeah. so they sort of use will smith's charisma you know, charisma so yeah which and is and i think that's part of his like maybe will smith is just too charismatic whereas keanu's sort of kind of more stoic. flat and yeah. stoic yeah, yeah. Um, he, he kind of is more appropriate for a character who has to slowly figure out it, it's, it's supposed to be confused <laughs> and so he has that kind of 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 affect and then it's slowly like coming to realization with things and it made me i just remembered that i strangely woke up in the middle of the night maybe like two weeks ago (laughs) with a totally trivial uh realization that men in black is a very similar story yeah with him kind of finding out that aliens aliens exist and having his identity having this mentor sort of walk him through the the truth of the universe and and then he comes to, he gets sort of indoctrinated and and familiar with it. And then he starts fighting to to save the world. It's like uh, that is weird how totally, similar that is. Sort of very tonally very different, but uh, on a narrative. Men in Black, a, a franchise, has probably made far more money and had has had more films. Yeah, uh, and the first one's really good, I think, and and everything after that is not. Yeah, I would. I would agree with that. The first Men in Black is just like, I have very fond memories of it. I still think it's funny. I think the I've watched it recently, and it's like it's pretty funny. And the the uh, the sort of consistent play on the word aliens as like immigrants. Yeah, you know, like it starts the the first movie starts with uh, an immigration stop. Yeah, and the truck <laughs> full of Tommy Lee Jones says to like the the trooper, he's like, uh, "Get back to work uh, protecting us from." The dangerous aliens, you know, <laughs> as if to say, there's nothing dangerous about immigrants. Yeah. There is something dangerous about actual, you know, outer space aliens. Yeah. I'm also a big fan of the worm guys. Wonga's a bonga's 
Yeah. Wonga. They were they were featured in one of those terrible Super Bowl commercials. I noticed that was oh. just like a nostalgia grab. Ugh. Yuck. Um, and the in Rip Torn just being awesome. Just anyway. having that name. <clears throat> yeah, just existing. Um, is he? Did he die? Yeah, he died recently. Yeah. Um, R.I.P. 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 Um, so, uh, so as far as it kind of relates to these other movies, and this will be like, I guess is kind of how we can sort of wrap up a little bit, but, um, the matrix definitely has the, the similar sort of thing of like, and the reason we sort of titled this reality smashers is because that's what all three films are doing is mm-hmm. taking sort of conceptions of reality and not just complicating them, but kind of blowing them apart. So in Truman Show, you have him realizing that his whole life's been curated and part of the show. In Pleasantville, you have people within a television world being sort of having their conceptions blown apart. And then The Matrix, you have Neo being told about the reality of... And in Men in Black, you know, it happens too. Um, well, you see all the characters' lives are, are, in some cases, within the world of the narrative, scripted. Mm-hmm. Pleasantville and the Truman Show, scripted fed to them and programmed in the matrix and to give a little cliche the the resolution is that they become like the authors of their own lives uh instead of you know receiving pre-written pre-written lines and so it seems to be a definite kind of mid to late 90s thing of having these films that were dealing with this idea that the world as you perceive it is not what you think it like it, there's more to the world the stuff happening happening behind the scenes and I, I feel like like maybe i'm wrong but it doesn't seem to happen as much anymore anymore it seems to be the films are the world is exactly as bad as you think it is and now you have to try to sort of struggle to change it or whatever it may mm-hmm. be and i you know i'm not really sure i i guess coming through you know 9-11 and two wars that are still ongoing and a financial collapse and all that sort of stuff like it's going to have some effects on on the culture yeah or or it doesn't even go that far and it's just about sort of taking refuge in like interpersonal dramas that take place within this sort of grid that these movies we're talking about today problematize like it, it's it's like neo sees the fake woman in the red dress like the you know the hot woman and it's like now movies are just about like neo trying to get with this woman and oh maybe she gets pregnant and it's like no none of this is real but like that's in a way i think you could use that as a metaphor for like a certain a certain type of mainstream film today it's just like is is scared to to take on the issues that these movies do yeah you think about like all the all the like early 2000s rom-coms like taking place within the matrix right Right. (laughs) that sort of idea it's like you think of how to lose a guy in 10 days or whatever it's like this doesn't matter right (laughs) like at all and for a lot of people that's why they like it because it's like a little encapsulated thing they don't have to think about you know climate change or or anything too serious they have to worry about whether or not this relationship is gonna develop and will love blossom rich guy get with the hot rich girl yeah well the good looking people finally link up yeah that's like 90 percent of movies (laughs) it's but you know now we're getting and and, you know the idiots will just be like "Ah, it's postmodern marxist bullshit you see that jordan peterson like 
went to Russia to get like treatment for his addiction and apparently was put like in an, an induced coma or something. No. Yeah. He's not doing well. I, I, so. I knew he wasn't doing well. And I've, I've sort of tried to avoid talking shit about him because of that. It makes me feel guilty, but it's also like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. What? And somebody on Twitter was like, it's, it's crazy to imagine that all this could have been avoided if he would have just used the correct pronouns <laughs> for the, for the student. Um, but yeah, there's, I forgot what I was saying because I got off track on Jordan Peterson. Um, oh yeah, so, so you know people say like, oh, it's postmodern and it's overcomplicating things and it's it's unrealistic and all that sort of stuff. But we we are getting um, a lot of stories that are deeply trying to complicate things. So if you think about just the Best Picture nominees, you have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is doing all sorts of shit with like commentary on the popular culture. You know, going all the way back to the to the sixties. Um, Parasite, which again, I haven't seen, but I know is doing a lot of things with class division and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Joker, which was literally like, <laughs> kind of like a, a left wing revolutionary sort of mm-hmm. film in, in a lot of ways. Although a lot of people will like Saturday Night Live reduced it to just like white male rage. And they're like, this is just about white male, which is just reductive and stupid to say. Uh, but it's Saturday Night Live. So right. what, what can you really expect? Did you did you happen to catch? Uh, I guess it went sort of viral. Joaquin Phoenix won at like the BAFTA Awards or something, and his speech was all about, you know, he's like, oh, I'm grateful for this award. Uh, this institution's really supported me. Uh, however, and then he talks for like three or four minutes about how there's no black people nominated yeah. or, or anything yeah. like that. Anyway, it's a it's a. a refreshingly honest speech and it, and it doesn't feel um you know some celebrities when they when they use that platform it feels very oh look how woke i am it, it maybe he's just a great actor you know and he's <laughs> performing but he he it feels uh authentically like he's lamenting this this fact um and he got all kinds of like support online for stating the facts anyway yeah. Kind of off topic, but look into it. Yeah. And so, you know, there 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 are things happening in film that are are even something like uncut gems is sort of problematizing the American dream and in, in different different things like that. Or or not even the American dream, it's sort of that very American impulse to to succeed and to win and to do all these sorts of things. And what does that really mean and who are you winning you know, on the backs of and all this sort of stuff. Um, and so, you know, there, there's interesting stuff happening in film. It's just whether or not people see it as such uh, is kind of the trick now. Uh, because, I mean, that's that's a big part of what we do on this podcast is just sort of try to talk about these movies that people sort of see them and they sort of sweep them into the corner. And they're like, that was a nice little, right. a nice little, you know, fiction for me to take in. Mm-hmm. Um and they don't really think about what it might say about the about the wider culture, about the world, all that sort of stuff. Um, which you know, I sound like I'm trying to like justify a film studies program to a provost or something, but yeah. but I think all those I, that, and that's part of why we do this is we think it has value. Like we don't do this because we're making money off of no, it or no. anything um, like that. And I think we're both sort of drawn to the idea of of a product existing in a commodity culture 
consciously trying to destabilize the the culture that supports it Um, yeah so you know movies especially hollywood movies definitely exist (laughs) in the matrix you know (laughs) yeah um and so to to make a movie that sort of problematizes or, or attempts to destabilize the grid that supports the world which produces this movie is uh um worth thinking about i think yeah so as you're watching the oscars tonight think about that yeah <laughs> and like last year when what was it like bohemian bohemian rhapsody one Did it? or green book was that green, green book, book. Like, yeah. yeah so you know that was a big controversy because people saw that as not trying to really complicate things it was trying to go back to the cut and dry very kind of 80s early 90s um driving miss daisy sort of thing of like if these two men can get along then everyone can get along like that racism should all be solved in this kind of way reductive race issues are are just like catnip for the oscar like crash oh yeah over what did it be? It beat something that was like, I can't definitely remember. a Brokeback Mountain, maybe. Oh, maybe it was <clears throat> outrageous. Anyway, um, so next week, I've already forgotten. Okay, so next week we're we're doing something that's uh, sort of we're going to continue on this kind of theme of like the '90s because it's the '90s are a weird decade that people have only sort of recently started thinking about. I think. Yeah. Um. And, and, you know, some people in a nostalgic way, but we're trying to do it in a more kind of critical way. But we're going to be looking at um, some artifacts and we're calling it 90s Amish Paradise. Uh, and it's sort of inspired by the weird 90s obsession with the Amish, mostly as like a source of comedy. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be looking at a lot of like comedic things. And this sort of uh, came about through thinking about these movies and how so many... 90s movies the source of their drama or their humor is is taken from positing a an authentic culture and then measuring this sort of cynical current 90s reality against it so the same way the truman show you know measures reality against this tv show uh what one film we'll look at next week is for richer or poor with Tim Allen and Christy Alley. Christy Alley. Yeah. Um, and so, and Kingpin, both yeah. of those movies kind of use the Amish culture as the authentic culture to measure sort of mainstream culture against. So it's in some ways it's a continuation of the, of the reality smashers. Yeah. And, and we could even make some connections to a movie. I know you're fond of, which is wonderlust which is doing a similar kind of thing, but with like a hippie kind of new age culture. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, we'll be doing all, we'll be all over the map next week. Um, so hopefully, yeah, we'll be back on probably a weekly schedule, I think, or we're going to try to be as best we can. We just got life intervenes, life finds a way. Um, so yeah, let's go get brunch, brunch time. All right.